podcast of Antioch Church in Colorado Springs. If you've been impacted by this ministry and would like to support the work we're doing in Colorado Springs, you can give online at our website, antiochcos.com. We hope that the Lord ministers to you through this message. Christ is risen. Amen. Absolutely. Welcome all of you who are joining us today for the first time. My name is Jay Duncan, and I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here, along with my wife, Christy, who you got to see earlier this morning. We are in the middle of a series on the Psalms, and it's, it's not a real uh, technical or official series. Essentially, what we're doing is we're taking the Psalms passages uh, that are laid out for us in the lectionary over the next two months, and we're using those as our launching pad to... Uh, talk about the purpose of the Psalms and how many of the Psalms are very, very different. And so from week to week, if you were here last week, you'll notice that today's message is drastically different in a lot of ways from last week's message. And Jonathan, I think, did a magnificent job taking a very, very complex, difficult, profound Psalm and, and making it very, very accessible. Funny story, though, and I have told Jonathan this. Uh, we're driving home, and Milan goes, Dad, um, what did Pastor Jonathan talk about today? Because she was in the service. And I said, well, and then she goes, because I didn't understand a word he said. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, well, basically, and I broke it down. She goes, oh, that makes a lot of sense. I said, I said, listen, babe, he made it sound really, really good, but I just make it sound really understandable. She goes... She goes, that's right, Daddy. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, so let's pray, and you can turn with me in your Bibles to the, uh, the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 71 today. Father, thanks so much for the opportunity that we have together as the people of God. Lord, and it's so good to just see the family start coming back together again after the summer, after summer travels um, and summer reprieves. Um, to get the family back together again in the house of the Lord, getting ready to go into the fall strong and to be all that you have called us to be. Father, where every single one of us are at today, uh, we know that every single one of us are coming in at different places, like Christy said earlier. Lord, some of us today, we need a word of comfort. Some of us, we need a word of counsel. We've got massive decisions that we're facing. Lord, some of us need healing in our hearts, in our emotions, in our minds, our memories, and in our physical bodies. Holy Spirit of the living God, you know where every single one of us are at. And we submit our lives, we submit this family and this service to you. Come, Holy Spirit, be among us and to us what only you can be. Be the Trinity of the living God. And we pray these things together today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm going to do a very, very brief recap uh, on our series opener, which began two weeks ago. And then probably from here on out, uh, we'll just point everybody to the podcast if you need a, a refresher on the introduction uh, to the Psalms. Uh, we started off talking about why the Psalms are important and what the Psalms are. And the Psalms are essentially the worship liturgy and the worship literature of the people of God in that day. But not just for that day, they have been the worship literature for the people of God throughout all of church history, beginning with the people of Israel when the book of Psalms was written. The Psalms remind us that God is good. That was a really great point for you to go, amen. 
Yeah, the Psalms remind us that God is good. When life isn't good, when relationships aren't good, when situations aren't good, when we aren't good, the Psalms remind us God is good. And not only is he good in the only way that he can be good, not as we define good, but as what goodness really is. Sometimes we look at what God does and goes, that's not good. No, it's good because he's good. And he's the definition and he's the standard of what good is, right? But the Psalms also remind us that God is great. He's great in his power. He is great in his capacity and he's great in his capability. And in anything that we do or in anything that we accomplish, in anything that we need in any situation that we're going through, his greatness surpasses it. His greatness is more than enough for any and every situation of our lives, whatever that might be. God, I need hope. His greatness is more than enough for that hope that you need. God, I need healing. His greatness is enough for that healing that we need in our lives. Um, So the Psalms are the private and the public account of the life of faith. So what we see in the Psalms, today we're gonna read what is called an individual lament. Last week, we read a corporate lament. And you can tell a lot of times by language um, from the author, is it a personal pronoun? Um, Is it an individual personal pronoun or is it a plural pronoun? And you can understand, okay, this he's speaking to the congregation here. And even though there's times when he's speaking to the congregation in the corporate Psalms and I go, I'm not really understanding what that means. Over the life cycle of sitting under the Psalms, and we got to remember this, It is a long obedience in the same direction. Discipleship is all about a long obedience in the same direction. Uh, We're not going to really see this massive amount of fruit if we're just kind of tinkering around and saying, well, I'm going to try this, and if it doesn't work, I'm going to pull out, or I'm going to give you a certain measure of my heart. I'm going to give you a certain measure of my time, my finances. I'm going to give you certain parts of my life, and God, if this doesn't work, then I've I've got some emergency plans in the back pocket. You will not see the fruit of discipleship until you go a long distance in the same obedience of faith. And that's a big part of what Psalm 71 is all about today. The Psalms teach us to direct the full range of our emotions to God, the full range. In fact, I was talking with a friend of mine a few weeks ago who was going through a very, very difficult and disappointing season of life. Um, He's going through seminary and he's actually studying, uh, or he was studying about the Psalms and about the different types of psalms, and how in certain psalms there are sections, there are characteristics. So in the psalm of individual lament, what you'll find is typically the author will go into a time of complaint. Now, not, 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 a, not an unhealthy, unfruitful complaint where you're just complaining and murmuring, but it's, it is a holy, strategic purposeful complaint where you're directing your complaint to God. And that's what you see right here. The Psalms are not just us kind of venting our emotions. The Psalms are us taking the full range of life and then expressing them to God. That's what sets the Psalms apart from just kind of writing in our journals. Okay. It is directing the full range of emotions to the Lord. If you're angry, 
find language for that, articulate it, write it down, and, and then use that language and direct that emotion to God. If something is unjust, like a lot of the world is unjust, grasp for creative language to express just how deep and how angry and how lost and how frustrated and how confused you are about this injustice and then direct that to God. All right, let's jump to Psalm 71 this morning. I'd like for us all to take a look at this. You don't necessarily have to read it out loud, uh, but today what I'm gonna do is basically do a, a minor keyword study. And uh, there's a couple of key words that pop up over and over and over again in Psalm 71. And it's really a good just Bible study practice. Like if you want to learn how to read the word better, pay attention to themes that repeat themselves over the course of an entire book. And pay attention to words that repeat themselves in the course of a particular chapter or a section of chapters. And we're going to see that today here in Psalm 71. So it's a little bit of a lengthy psalm. I'm going to read the entire psalm. Don't check out. And then we're going to go back up to the front, break all these themes down, tie it all together, put a nice bow on it. And, um, and Holy Spirit's going to wreck your life. <laughs> all right, here we go. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. By the way, I want you to just take mental note or even literal physical notes on certain themes or words that you see repeating themselves. Rescue me and deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give me the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, O oh my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of evil and cruel men. All right, just pause right here. This is what we would call section one and this psalm. And obviously, these are all petitions. And what's the tone? What's the attitude? What's the tenor? What's going on here? It's not a happy moment. Everything's not going great. He's in trouble. There's desperation. All right, and then you see that word enemies. We're gonna talk about enemies today. And you see that in the midst of desperation, in the midst of probably a lot of fear and uncertainty, the psalmist starts out with saying, God, be my rock, be my refuge. It's interesting because in my personal reading plan, I'm actually going through parts of the Old Testament I'm, and I'm in the life of David right now. And it's interesting because a lot of times, David found himself in literal caves when he was running away. He ran away from Saul, we know that, from, from a spiritual father who was acting unjustly and literally trying to kill him. But later in his life, after years of reigning, he was actually running away from his own son who betrayed him and who stole the hearts and the affections of the entire nation. And David pulls his entire kingdom and those who are loyal to him and heads out on a long trip journey back to the caves. So when he says things like, Lord, be my rock and be my fortress and be my refuge, I, I think he was probably writing those in some pretty literal caves, looking around and going, these caves are protecting me from, from, from some crazy people right now. And in the same way that this structure is hiding me and sheltering me and protecting the tender places, the vulnerable places of my life. God, I need you to do that. 
You hear the vulnerability there? God, I need you to protect the exposed places of my heart and of my life. All right, next section. Uh, Beginning in verse five. For you have been my hope, past tense. You have been my hope, O sovereign Lord. You have been my confidence since my youth. Now, we're gonna see throughout this psalm that there's this youth and old tension interaction relationship. Pay attention to how many times you see the word birth or youth and old and old age. You have been my confidence since my youth. From my birth, I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb and I will ever praise you. I will ever, do you ever think about how vulnerable you were at birth? Like, I don't think about that stuff until I read the Psalms. And the Psalms put life in perspective. And the Psalms remind us of the full range of the experience of the human life. And as I was reading this, I thought, oh my word, I was so vulnerable. Every baby, every child in the mother's womb, and when the child comes out of the mother's womb, is absolutely dependent upon external forces in order for their lives to to make it, right? That's the life of faith. That's what David is saying here. David is saying, and I know here's the difficult thing as being Western Americans who are middle-class and semi-prosperous, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to forget that in the same way that a newborn baby absolutely must have love, affection, protection, care, the fragility, how fragile, how tender, how exposed that life is. Guys, believe it or not, that's us. That's us. And David's being reminded of this because he's on the run and he's got enemies that are against him. And he's saying, God, I'm vulnerable and I'm exposed. But in the same way that I was a little baby and I put my absolute faith in you and in the same way that you protected me, even when I was fragile like a little baby, Lord, you are still that faithful to protect me today. And I am still that dependent upon you. I have become like a portent to many. What is a portent? A portent is like an omen or a sign. So in other words, what's happening here is there are people that are, (laughs) this is funny, and I think we do this, or at least other people around us do this. A portent is an omen. So what people are doing around David is they're, they're going, hey, look at you. Things aren't going well for you, and it's probably your fault, and it's judgment of God. And they're over spiritualizing his situation. They're over-spiritualizing his situation so they can justify being opposed to him. You ever done that? You ever over-spiritualize a situation so you can justify being in the wrong? So you can justify slandering? So you can justify harboring your offense? So you can justify being bitter? Because that's what he's saying right here. I have become like like a spiritual omen. Now look at the words that follow right there. He says, I have become like a portent, but... Even though these people are over-spiritualizing the situation to be opposed to me, God, I'm relying on you. You've got to be not just my refuge, my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Here's this old language again. Do not cast me away when I'm old. Do not forsake me when my strength is gone. We're gonna talk about the vulnerability of old age today. Here's the word enemies again. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. They're taking counsel. They're collaborating to be against me. They say God has forsaken him. Pursue him and seize him for no one will rescue him. Be not far from me, O God. Come quickly, my God, to help me. 
May my accusers perish in shame. May those who want to harm me be covered with scorn and disgrace. Here is the key of the entire Psalm, verse 14. And it's not coincidental that it's right in the middle of the verse. This is called structural poetry. So they're putting the most, he's putting the most important part of the entire Psalm right in the middle. So it's like everything builds up to this crossroad, this apex, and then the Psalm turns. But as for me, if there's ever a Psalm that you want to memorize, this is a good one. As for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteousness, of your salvation all day long, though I can't even measure it. I will come and proclaim your mighty acts, O sovereign Lord. I will proclaim your righteousness. Notice that there's two things that he's proclaiming, the character of God and the actions of God. I will proclaim your mighty acts. I will proclaim your righteousness. There's a key there. Since my youth, O God, you have taught me. And to this day, I declare your marvelous deeds. So the, the psalmist is writing this when he's old. And he's looking backwards on a life of his history with God. He's looking backwards on his relational history. He's taking account of the faithfulness of God. Doesn't mean that everything went exactly the way he wanted it to. It just means that throughout the course of decades, the psalmist is looking back and said, God, you have been faithful. You have walked with me. You have watched over me. You have protected me. I should have died a thousand times. There's no way that I should have killed that giant. There's no way that I should have made it from Saul. There's no way that I should have survived the whole Bathsheba incident. There's no way that every single story of his life, through his mistakes, through his guilt, and through, through massive successes and victories, he's saying, God, You've been with me. You've walked with me. I have relational history with you. Since my youth, you have taught me, and to this day I declare your deeds. So even when I am old and gray, do not forsake me until I declare your power to the next generation. Your righteousness reaches to the skies, O God, you who have done great things, who is like you. Though you have made me see troubles, many and bitter, you will restore my life again. From the depths of the earth, you will again bring me up. You will increase my honor and comfort once again. That's not coincidental. I will praise you with the harp for your faithfulness. I will sing praise to you with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praise, I whom you have redeemed. My tongue will tell of your righteous acts all day long, for those who wanted to harm me have been put to shame and confusion. This is the word of the Lord. All right, let's, let's dig in here for a few minutes on Psalm 71. All right, the context, like I mentioned earlier, is that the psalmist is writing this from uh, old age. And I think this is important, particularly because we don't put a lot of emphasis on what it means to live the life of faith faithfully into our older years. Even as a culture, and I think sometimes as a church, we fall into this. We put so much emphasis on the youth. We put so much emphasis on the young, what's charismatic, what's trendy, what's trending, what's cool, right? But there is something to be said. In fact, there's more than something to be said. Guys, the ultimate goal, right, is that we are following God faithfully up into the twilight years of our lives, 
The goal isn't that we just shoot up and we have a lot of passion and energy and strength for God in our 20s and 30s and and maybe kind of, you know, rationalize it all out in our 40s and start to retire in our 50s. The goal is that in every chapter of life, in every season of your life, this is my goal and I've said this to the Lord. Lord, I do not want to be more passionate for you in my youth than when I'm older. And every year that I graduate into, I'm saying, God, I let my roots go deeper. Let my faith get stronger. Let my passion be more mature. Let my affection for you in the older days of my year be more strong than they were in my youth because they're married with something. They're tempered with something. It's like a good marriage, right? Okay, yeah, there was a lot of emotion in the beginning, but I'm telling you, those who have been married 25 and 30 and 50 years, there is something that has now tempered that passion. And it's not an either or. I'm telling you, the passion now has become mature. The love has become mature. That's what life in God's supposed to be like. That's what life in God, that's the invitation for life in God, to develop a lifetime of relational history in God. One of the things that we're going to talk about uh, in our men's retreat, men, just to give you a little bit of a highlight, is this phrase, finish the race. Paul prayed that prayer. He actually made this a declaration at 2 Timothy chapter 4. Can we actually go there, Colin? We're going to look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, let's take a look at verses uh, 6 through 7. This is why Jonathan wears that nifty little headset so he can turn Bible pages. He's so smart. See, what I do is I just just rely on other people like Colin because he puts it on the screen for me. This is what Paul says, and this is Paul writing in 2 Timothy. He's writing this from a prison. He steps away from death. It says in the latter uh, years of his life, and this is what he writes to his spiritual son. He says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time for my departure is near. Listen to that. He's writing this from a context. He's writing this from the vulnerability of old age. Verse seven, I have fought the good fight. Wouldn't you like to say that? Wouldn't you like to say that at the end of your days, when everyone's gathered around you, when you have an opportunity to prop yourself up on your staff and look into the eyes of your spouse and look into the eyes of your children and your grandchildren or look into the eyes of friends that you have faithfully been committed to for decades. Wouldn't you love to prop yourself up and look them in the eye and say, guys, I can go to, I can go because I have fought the good fight. I have fought it. I have fought it. There were times when I wanted to, you know, put down my gloves. There were times when I wanted to walk out the ring there are times where I want to just give up on this entire thing. And friends, listen, if, you just, if you're on Facebook or Twitter or, or MSNBC, you know right now there are people, mainline public international figures that are coming out and they are walking away from the faith. This is not in judgment of them. This is, uh, this, is, this is me saying in faithfulness to the gospel and the scriptures, we as a community of followers of Jesus, we are making it our goal that we can say this with integrity. I fought the good fight. Friend, in your relationship right now, fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. I know know he can be a knucklehead. I know it seems like shit's never gonna change. Fight that fight. Fight, resist temptation. Resist temptation. Whatever temptation right now that you're entertaining because you think that it's greater than what you're in right now, I'm telling you, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. It's a trap and it's a snare 
And that very thing that's inside of you that would make you go somewhere else or to somebody else or to something else because you're fleeing that external situation, you're taking you with you. You are with you. Your brokenness and your issues and your immaturity, it's in you wherever you go. And you're taking that to the next situation and you're taking it to the next person. Fight the good fight. Fight it. And this isn't all on you, man. Get a brother, get a sister, get a friend, get a father, get a people and say, fight with me. I need you to fight with me. Don't hide it. Don't isolate it. Fight the good fight. Let's look at the next thing. It says, I have finished the race. I have finished the race. Now there is the race. There is the race of the gospel of Jesus. But there is your lane in that race. Finish that race. Finish it. You may have to walk sometimes. Right? That pace may slow down. It might seem light years until the next watering station. Okay? But whatever you do, don't stop and don't walk off that track. Stay on that field and finish. Finish. We're finishers. We're finishers. You're a finisher. You're a finisher. I know, I know, I know. listen guys, I know, your lung, the, the lungs of your love will burn. And it seems like you don't have the oxygen of God's breath in your lungs. I know the muscles of your faith will cramp up. And you're gonna say, no, I can't finish this. I need to stop. I need to stop. This isn't worth it. And that's what happens. You start entertaining these thoughts. Is this really worth it? Is that ribbon worth it? Is that t-shirt worth it? Right? I'm here to tell you right now, the scriptures tells us there was a man that went out to a field and he found a treasure. He found a treasure. And the scriptures tell us that that treasure was so valuable that that man went and he sold everything he had to buy that field because he saw, he said, nothing right now compares with how valuable that this field is. That's your faith. That's Jesus. That's G- I'm just here to, t- I'm here to remind you today, it's worth it. It's worth it to stay in the fight. It's worth it to finish the race. And we're gonna talk practically over the men's retreat about how we can be men who fight and finish and stay in this thing. Colin, can we put that verse on there? I just wanna hit that last point. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. I have kept the faith. Back to Psalm 71, one of the things that you hear in the psalmist is you hear this, you hear the, the language of vulnerability that comes with recognizing the limitation of humanity. I'll say this another way. I think, and, and just in conversations with um, the more wiser and in those uh, books that I've read written by people that are uh, older in their faith, I think what happens is this. We begin to recognize and realize that we are finite creatures. And in order to like end well and die well, we have to embrace that limitation well in God, all right? In my youth, I used to say stupid things like Superman don't get hurt and Superman don't get sick. And I'm Superman, like the, the implication was I'm Superman, right? Superman don't get tired, okay? Listen, I used to, I used to pull all-nighters out of my own procrastination and irresponsibility. And, and, here, and here's why I kept doing it, because I just bounced back. It's easy to bounce back when you're 20. Okay. I'm only 42. I, th- I know compared to a lot of you guys, I'm still very, very, very young. But I'm telling you, the all-nighters, they, it takes me three days now to bounce back. Okay? It takes me three, at least. Okay? 
I ain't sue, I'm Clark Kent now. <laughs> Clark Kent, right? Kryptonite all around me. But I think the beauty of the life of faith and the beauty of being in community, guys, the beauty of actually having authentic relationship where we can hear from those who live more life than us is those who can, who can give us priceless wisdom that has been purchased, that is expensive. I want to, you know, listen, there's a lot of great preachers out there. I want to hear from the man who stayed faithful to his wife for 50 years. I want to stay faithful. I want to I listen to the men and the women who are in their 60s and 70s and 80s and said, you know what? There are times that I got so offended that I thought I didn't know what I was going to do with my soul, but I pressed into Jesus. I want to hear those secrets. I want those keys because the key for Antioch isn't to be the most popular group on the block. The goal for us is to be people that make it and pass something faithful on to generations behind us. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. So the older give us this perspective that, hey, the physical strength that you once had, the ability to defend yourself and fight your own battles, that's going to go away. You're not going to have that anymore. You're going to need other people. You're going to need them. And here's what I'm telling you. What you sow in the strength of your life, you will reap in the vulnerability of your life. Jesus tells Peter this. You guys remember the last chapter of John the last chapter of the Gospel of John, Jesus is about to transition onto heaven. He has a conversation with Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Three times. And then he tells Peter something that's so peculiar. And he says, Peter, listen, there was a time where you got to be the leader and you were strong and you got to walk people around and take care of them. He goes, but buddy, there's gonna be a day where that changes. And there's gonna be a day where you can't even change your own clothes and brush your own teeth and take care of your own physical hygiene. You're gonna need someone to lead you. You're going to be vulnerable. You're going to be weak. You're going to be weak. And the life of faith is not just about the life of strength. Chris Green, when he was here a few weeks ago, he was talking with us about this. And if, and if you don't recall, um, either on the Sunday message or on the Monday night uh, teaching, where he was talking with a group of ministers and leaders, he was referencing the life of Elijah and Elisha. And for those of you guys who are familiar with the Elijah-Elisha story, picks up in 1 Kings 19 and carries over into the uh, first chapters of 2 Kings. Chris brought something out that I had never seen before because when I thought about Elijah and Elisha growing up and the power movement of charismatic Christianity, it was always this. It was always framed like this. Hey, if you guys want double portion mantles, you've got to press in and you've got to be Elishas that go the distance and you're going to be, un I mean, it's so much focus on willpower and strength, Right? Elisha asks Elijah, he says, Father, I want a double portion I want of your spirit. I want your mantle to fall upon me in double measure. And Elijah says this, he says, you've asked a hard thing. You've asked a hard thing. And again, as a youth, it was, oh, you've asked a hard thing because, you know, I'm gonna resist you three times and you've gotta, you've gotta muster up your, your strength and you've gotta power up your faith and you've gotta... No, I think now what Elijah was saying is you're asking to see me in my most vulnerable weakness of my life. I'm not endued with power anymore. I'm an old man. I need you to wash my hands, Elisha. You're gonna see my frailty. You're gonna see my humanity. You're going to see my vulnerability. You're going to see the most transparent parts of my life. And the reason why this is hard is because I'm not sure 
if you have enough maturity to handle the weakness in my life, Elisha. But Elisha, if you'll lean in, I'll lean in too. And I believe that God will grace me to allow you to see me in my old age and walk me through so I can finish this. Our fathers and our mothers need us. They need our strength and our youth to help them finish their race. But we need to help them finish their race because there's something from them that we're called to receive. All right, the second thing that we see here in Psalm 71 is we see this, this theme of enemies over and over again. Take a look right here again in verses one through four. Verses one through four. In you, Lord, I've taken refuge, which implies that there is some threat. Let me never be put to shame, which implies that there are those who are desiring and seeking the shame of David. Rescue me, deliver me, be my rock of refuge. Look at verse four, deliver me from the hand of the wicked. Look again right here at verse 10. For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. My enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me are making plans. They're making plans. They're taking counsel. You know, you know it goes to the next level when you take your toxicity and your bitterness and your resentment and you start going and creating allies against another person. That's what's happening right here. And listen, we do that. We do that. We take counsel. We create allies like a giant game of church risk. We're just building up our allies so that we can justify our own resentment and our own bitterness and our own ugliness. That's what's going on right here. Now, there's two kinds of enemies. I'm going to make this super simple. There's your explicit enemies. These are people that don't know God. These are people that are godless and lawless, and they are violently and vehemently opposed to you, right? But then they're, then they're your implicit enemies. These are, these are more sneaky. These are harder to recognize. And I think about Judas when I think about our implicit enemies. I think about people that have walked with us. I think about people that do know um, parts of our lives and they've, they've seen our frailty, they've seen our humanity. And how do enemies form? They form through a lot of, th- a lot of things. I think resentment and offense and bitterness are one of the number one ways that friends and family members and church members turn into enemies. Resentment and offense and bitterness. And this is what he's dealing with. He's dealing with in the old age of his life when he's vulnerable and not sure. There's this, there's this battle that you see because you see the word forsaken three times in Psalm 71. If you're not paying attention, you won't catch it. But in three times, the psalmist says, don't forsake me. God, don't leave me. And then he says this. He says, my enemies are saying that you have forsaken me. And then he goes back and he says, God, in my old age, don't forsake me. So there's this, there's this, there's this tug of war inside of us particularly when I think when we're most vulnerable, God, are you still with me? Are you still with me? Are we still in this thing together? Are you still for me? 
Are you still for me, God? Is what my enemy's saying, is it right? Are they justified? Do I deserve this? Do I stay in this? God, don't forsake me. Don't leave me. Don't abandon me. How do we deal with enemies? Here's the thing, guys. In the Christian faith, if we're going to make it, if we're going to say 2 Timothy 4, 7, if we're going to fight the good fight, if we're going to finish the race, if we're going to keep our faith, we have to know how to deal with enemies, both explicit and implicit enemies. And Jesus is very, very clear. In Matthew chapter 5, in fact, why don't we go there? Matthew chapter 5, Colin, we're going to look at verses 43 through 48. Jesus teaches us how to deal with enemies. And the thing that I love about this is Jesus knows that there are enemies on the road of faith. There are people that will betray us. There are people that will misrepresent you. They will take your good intentions and your good motives and they will completely twist them and alter them. They will pervert them. They'll tell stories about you that are absolutely false. You will have enemies in your life. You will have hidden enemies and you will have obvious enemies. How do we deal with enemies? Matthew chapter five, verse 43, Jesus tells us, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You wanna know one of the greatest ways to protect your heart? Don't take the seed or the poison of bitterness. Don't be a victim. Don't be a victim. Because here's the thing, no matter what anyone does to you, no matter what anyone says about you, no matter what smear campaign is designed against you, no matter if someone physically tortures or terrorizes you, and that is happening around the world as we speak, no matter what injustice is happening against you because you are a Christian or because of your race or your class, and because it's happening, this is the world we live in. The thing that keeps you and me from being victims to that is this right here. Pray for them. Get in the offense. Get in the offensive. You can't touch me. You can't touch me because I have put myself in the position of praying for you. I'm praying for you. I'm forgiving you. I'm releasing you. And now I'm offensively going against that very thing. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Anybody who hurts you, they don't know what they're doing. They're blind. Your enemies are blind. They're blind. That's the issue. Jesus said it to you. He gave us the key. They don't know what they're doing, right? They don't know what they're doing. And so how do we, how do we fight against that? We get in the offensive and we pray for them. We pray for those who are persecuting us and you stay in that. What happens when we pray for our enemies? God gives us divine perspective. God releases divine grace. God protects our emotions. God keeps us safe. God becomes a refuge and a shield to us. God covers our vulnerability. All of these things are accessible to us when we say, God, we are gonna pray for our enemies. We're gonna pray for our kids out there. Lord Jesus, help. You know that verse in... The Lord's Prayer, 
And, and by the way, we, we just need to revisit the Lord's Prayer because I'm, I'm kind of got this sneaky suspicion that it's just kind of become something we're doing. Guys, the life that is available, let me just say this as a teaser. There is no prayer that you can or will pray that is not in some ways connected to the structure of the Lord's Prayer. Doesn't matter, whatever, whatever prayer you're praying, everything that you're praying for is somehow finds its way back to the, to the crux and the center of the Lord's Prayer. And in this one, it is forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against you. That's how you deal with enemies. All right, here, last point here. Um, This is really, really fun. But one of your tools, one of your greatest tools is what's in your mouth. One of your greatest tools is what's in your mouth. And beginning at verse eight, will you just turn with me to to verse eight? Now, I'm gonna marry two of these points here together really quick because one of the things that we see that David does in his vulnerability, in his old age, in his desperation, running from his enemies, okay, fighting against the temptation to get bitter himself. Here's what David does. He reflects on his relational history with God. This is why it's so important that you don't give up because every day and every hour and every year that you stay in the yoke, you're building your relational history. You have more to reflect back on because the battles only get worse the longer you live, guys. Psalm 71, verse eight, he says, my mouth is filled with your, pay attention to how many times he uses the word mouth or lips or tongue or declare or proclaim. Okay, now I'm not talking about just kind of putting a Band-Aid on something. I'm talking about looking so deeply at the character of God and reflecting so long on his faithfulness that something comes out of you and it's called praise. I'm not talking about buzzwords and Christian cliches that we slap on things to, you know, override doing the real soul work. I'm talking about a praise that comes out of revelation. Now look at, look at this, so many verses. Verse eight, my mouth is filled with your praise declaring your splendor all day long. Let me just speak to all of our spiritual warfare folks who like to use the word declare and decree over and over and over again. And let me just tell you, most of the things you're declaring and decreeing, you don't have the legal authority to declare or decree. But you know what you can declare? You can declare the greatness of God. That's, there, that, there you go. There's, that's legal for you. That's legal for you. Okay, be careful going, running around trying to make decrees because really it's called blasphemy. And here's why, because God says, don't take my name in vain. And if you roll around saying, God said to decree this and you don't have the kingly or royal authority to decree those things, you're actually misrepresenting him. But here's safe, here's safe. Declare his goodness. Declare his faithfulness. Declare his power. Declare his, his, his works in the earth. Come on, y'all, y'all, ain't, y'all ain't shouting at me like y'all need to be shouting at me this morning. All right, y'all mean to take, take that word on being offended and just go work it out. Verse 14, all right, listen, but we're, we're, we're bringing this to a close. But as for me, I shall always have hope. I will praise you. Praise is active. It's active. Praise is not passive. Praise is not passive. Praise is not neutral. Praise is active. So when you read the Psalms or you think about the life of praise, I'm telling you, folding your arms and kind of cocking back and doing a contemplative deal, that's not praise. That's not praise. Clapping your hands is praise. Shouting is praise. Lifting your voice is praise. Jumping up and down is praise. Raising your hands is praise. All right, that's praise because praise is a dynamic work. 
of response to a revelation of the goodness of God. Verse 15, look at verse 15. My mouth will tell of your righteousness. What will tell? My mouth will tell. Use your mouth. When you're afraid, when you're in doubt, when your enemies are oppressing against you, when you're being persecuted, when things are unjust, listen, instead of filling your mouth with resentment, fill your mouth with praise. Instead of going and having a conversation that just keeps everything in this vicious cycle, and instead of rumoring and gossiping and slandering and complaining, take that same energy with that same vessel and fill your mouth with good things that are true and that are lovely and that are good and that are pure and that have the power to change your perspective, that have the power to move you from a victim to an overcoming son and daughter of the living God. I'm telling you guys, we're living as adolescents because that's what junior high students do. That's what junior high, can you, oh my God. Mean girls, six chicks, right? That's junior high level. And listen, if you're a junior high level in your faith, that's okay. We're gonna help you. We're gonna help you. It's okay to be a junior high level of your faith, but even at junior high level of your faith, there's things that are doing that are hurting you and that are hurting your family and that are hurting your witness and that are hurting your effectiveness. Let's mature, okay? Look at verse 16. I will come and I will proclaim I will proclaim your mighty acts. Listen, it is an active, dynamic. You want, some, you want some action steps? Fill your mouth with the unchanging character of God's nature and with the faithfulness of his work. And if you don't have anything else good to say, open up the Psalms and just read it out over and over and over. Fill your mouth. Fill your mouth with the right things. Verse 17, since my youth you have taught me and to this day, look at it, I declare. I mean, it's almost so obvious we can't argue with it, can we? I declare your marvelous deeds. Look, look at verse 18. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me till I declare your power to the next generation. There's something bigger. There's another generation that needs your faith testimony. There's another generation that needs you to get through this offense. There's another generation that needs you to get through this pressure. There's another generation that needs you to fight and to finish and to keep your faith. The next generation is dependent upon you staying in the yoke of faith and being in a long obedience in the same direction. All right, I just got three more verses. Verse 22, verse 22. I will praise you with the harp. I will sing praises. That's with the mouth. Verse 23, my lips will shout for joy. And verse 24, my tongue will tell of your righteousness. I just gave you 10 verses that all talk about the power of filling your mouth. Is that coincidental? All right, he's old, he's vulnerable, he's tired, he's weak, he's afraid, he's reflecting on how God has been faithful. And over and over and over again, he says, I'm gonna fill my mouth with what is right and good and true. God, you are faithful and you have always come through. Guys, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what enemies you're facing. I don't know what temptations that are up against you right now, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I do know that God is good. I know that God is for you. I know that he is worth it. And I know that the spirit of God in you is strong. And I know that we can make it.
Let me close right here. All those ministers at the table, would you please come forward this morning? And I'm gonna close here in Hebrews chapter 12. Colin, thank you. Yeah, that was probably so distracting for most of you the entire service. Why does he just pick up his papers? My gosh. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 12. Look at verse one. Therefore, you guys can come on forward. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Your offense and your bitterness and your resentment, are, they are weights and they are sins that are trapping you. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Next verse. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Verse three, consider him who endured such opposition so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. What do we do? We have enemies on every side. What do we do? We consider him who endured such opposition so that we don't lose heart. Friend, don't lose heart. Don't lose your heart. Don't lose your heart. Don't lose it. Your heart's too valuable. We need your heart. Our sons and our daughters need your heart to be in this. Friends, let's stand to our feet this morning. Today, we're gonna come to this table and we're gonna remember that Jesus had an enemy that sat at his table. At a real literal physical table where they shared a meal and he washed Judas's feet and Judas received of the body and the blood of Jesus. Jesus didn't withhold that from his enemy. He brought his enemy near. He loved him to the end. And was Judas's, were Judas's decisions painful? I believe they were. I believe they were deeply painful. And I believe that honestly, that was one of great, Jesus's greatest and final temptations. What are you gonna do with the offense of the betrayal of a friend? I mean, it happened just, just moments before he went to the cross. And I'm here to tell you today, because the scripture says that the enemy waited for an opportune time. Like he, he tested Jesus early in his ministry, but like literally hours before the cross, the enemy tempted him again with the betrayal of a friend, right? And what did Jesus do? He loved him to the end. He loved him to the end. And he gave that offense and that brokenness to God. And this morning, wherever you're at today, let us bring our enemies to the Lord. Let us bring our offenses to the Lord. Let's bring our emotions to the Lord. Let's bring our experiences and our disappointments to the Lord. And let's let God strengthen us by grace. Father, today, thank you so much that a psalm of individual lament can teach us so much about how to live a life of faith and finish well and finish strong. Help us today, O God, as we come to receive grace from Jesus and empowerment of your spirit. We come in remembrance of you and of your resurrection. Folks, come on up. Thank you for listening to the Antioch Church Sermon of the Week. For more information about us, visit AntiochCOS.com. Thank you.